All right, welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, your host, along with my co-host, Jimmy Bucciolato. And Hi, we, are, we are very lucky this week to have a very special guest, one of the best crime reporters uh, in all of uh, the United States of America, Stephanie Berry from Mass Live. Uh, she covers the mob in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is an outpost of the Genovese crime family from New York. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure and flattery will get you everywhere. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> She's a, she is the definition of a crack reporter and someone that uh, has her finger on the pulse of that mob family out in Western Mass, which uh, is really a, uh, a, an ongoing soap opera for the last 20 years or so. And it's very interesting to read about. And, and Stephanie has done such great uh, research and uh, journalism and uh, just her ability to tell that story is uh, is outstanding and puts her up there in the in the pantheon of, of great uh mob reporters in america we wanted to bring stephanie on to talk about uh some current uh criminal affairs uh, within the legal system uh with the springfield mob crew specifically tied to a uh kind of a cross-pollination of criminal groups that hit back in december in a case that the federal government dubbed Operation Throne Down, uh, and it involved the Latin Kings, which is a very prominent uh, Hispanic organized crime group, and it dovetailed a little bit with the Italian mob in Springfield. Um, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about that bus? You reported a lot of uh, a lot about of it, a lot about it back in December, I believe. It took down sixty Latin Kings, and uh, within that indictment, it talked about a number of uh, Latin Kings meetings that were held at the Our Lady of uh, Mount Carmel Social Club, which is ground zero for the uh, the Springfield mob crew. That's right. So it was kind of unusual how it unfolded. I mean, so that was a major move um, by the feds to take down Latin Kings, which are a pretty unabashedly violent um, gang dating back to, I think the 60s or 70s, I believe they're, they originated out of Chicago, but they've kind of proliferated um, across, up and down the East Coast. They have a pretty prominent foothold in Massachusetts, both Western and Eastern Mass out of Boston. But the statewide, and actually beyond that, the regional leader is Michael Piccatelli, who I actually covered probably a decade ago. He was labeled the head of the Latin Kings statewide when he was indicted for similar drug and um, violent activity. And I thought at the time, well, isn't that odd? Why would they have an Italian guy running the Latin Kings? Um, but he had been grooming himself to lead this gang since he was just a teenager. He began as an activist, kind of a low level criminal. By the time 2005 or 2006 rolled around, he had gained a leadership status across the state. He went to jail for a few years, and then he came out and continued to rise through the ranks. Um, I think he probably bumped up his cred in prison, like many gang members do. But the reason, the, the link between the Latin Kings and the Italian mom in Springfield is so uh, Michael Ciccatelli is the nephew of David Ciccatelli, who's been a very long time fixture in, I. He's never been a made guy. I think associate is probably the highest he's ever ascended to. I'm not sure that he's ever had ambitions um, 
to be a boss, but he certainly has been around a long time and a fixture at the Mount Carmel Society Club for a long time. And he's very close with his nephew. They worked together at the time of both of their arrests. And I, the way that I see it, I think David Ciccatelli, the uncle, was Michael Ciccatelli's entree into that traditionally Italian social club. Um, and so they began to hold meeting, and at least two of them were surveilled by the FBI. And it was cited in that very lengthy FBI affidavit filed along with the Latin community case. So in addition, and, sorry, what's up? So when the sweep happened, Michael and David Ciccatelli were living in a multifamily home in Springfield. So when they raided that house, they found a gun and some ammo stuffed under David Ciccatelli's bed. So he got caught up. He was sort of collateral damage. He wasn't a target, but he ended up getting indicted. And uh, Chicky Ciccatelli or David Ciccatelli goes by the, the nickname Fat Chicky. Uh, he's a bit of a colorful yeah. <laughs> uh, mod figure, Chachatelli. Um, can you kind of describe him and talk about when you first encountered him, maybe, you know, back in the early 2000s? Sure. I mean, I would describe him as somewhat of a caricature. Um, he's a very large man, although his weight has fluctuated over the years. He's very into the chunky gold chains, these customized, like, really colorful velour tracksuits. Um, I think I first encountered him, he got indicted in the early to mid 2000s along with Anthony Arrelata in the year or two following Al Bruno's murder. The feds and the state police were trying to just bring these cases to just kind of put the squeeze on the people they thought may know something about Bruno's murder. So that's when I first um, encountered Chicky. Um, I don't know if he did any time. No, I think he did five months in that case. He pled out to, basically he was running the phones for Aerolata in one of the betting operations in Springfield. Um, so he wasn't a major character, but he has this kind of larger than life persona, which I think has advanced his profile. Let's give people a little insight and background um, on the Springfield crew. Stephanie, can you give us like, you know, literally like a minute or two uh, synopsis of that crew and bring us up to the early 2000s when that bust with Chachatelli occurred? Sure, so the Springfield crew has ebbed and flowed over the years for decades. So, I mean, I think that the major boss when I started covering, he was before my time, but, but so it started with a man named Sam Big, Big Nose Kafari. He died of natural causes. Then there's this prominent family, the Chabellis. There were brothers, Skyball and Baba Chabelli. Both have passed away. Um, after that, Bruno, Al Bruno, who was murdered in 2003, started kind of rising to power. He was aligned with the Chabellis. Um, there were other figures, Anthony DeLevo. So they were all kind of contemporaries, the older guys. Um, underneath them, they were grooming and bringing along some younger guys, uh, most notably Anthony Arrelata, who I think would admit Bruno was his mentor for a very long time, and then Arrelata spearheaded his murder. He was his undoing because he started getting cozy with the bosses in New York. is a pretty um, persuasive kind of charismatic figure. Um, the Bruno murder and the following 
the ensuing prosecution basically took out most of the most of the maid guys in Springfield, leaving maybe a couple of you know really elderly maid guys, but kind of the most important movers and shakers. That investigation just took them all out, so it left this void. So when Anthony Erlata and his co-defendants Freddie and Tychius went to prison, there was this kind of vacuum where. I would say associates who are on the periphery, you know, on the periphery and fringes over the years, like David Ciccatelli, like Ralph Santanello, it left opportunities for them to kind of, you know, fight for scraps. So, you know, in tandem, so that major investigation took out all of these major players. At the same time, a lot of the traditional um, ventures, mob ventures, you know, numbers, loan sharking. Um, betting on the streets were kind of waning, you know, as casinos and online betting became more popular. So it was this kind of perfect storm leaving no particular structure um, where there had been a lot of structure for many decades in Springfield. And I would say, I think we still find ourselves there today here in Springfield. So uh, to, to further illuminate the terrain that we're on right now, uh, we've been talking about the Our, um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Social Club or the, the Our Lady of Mount Carmel Society Social Club. That was the location back in November of 2003 that Big Al Bruno was assassinated at. That's correct. Right. So in 2003, he was coming out of his regular Sunday night poker game and he got um, ambushed in the parking lot and killed. Um, by, by a guy named Frankie Roach, right? Correct. And he was, I mean, hitman, maybe overstating it, but he was a paid gunman. He met um, Anthony Arrelata and more importantly, Freddie and Ty Gius, his enforcers, in, when they were all in prison. Freddie Gius referred to Frankie Roach as his crash dummy, which is completely uninhibited, violent. I think he had a drinking and drinking at the time. So, I mean, this kid would just go out and do all that beating, um, and they paid him $10,000, you know. And, um, and then he took off to Florida, so he was on the right. So, to bring it back to more current times, Freddie G is, who has been in prison now for going on a decade, has been implicated in the Whitey Bulger murder from behind bars. That's right. So, um... I was watching with interest, you know, like all of us, the, the Whitey Bulger headlines, and I, I saw a short piece that said Bulger was um, being transferred to a prison in West Virginia. And I thought, hmm, that's where Freddie Gius is. And the reason that I know that is because he sends prison cards every year from Hazleton from that prison. Um, so I, I just kind of took mental note of it. And then I read the next day, Whitey Bulger and he went, huh. <laughs> um, but I said, no, that just, there's so many guys in there. It just, it just it would be too much of a coincidence. But turns out he and another gangster both have been implicated in that very vicious prison murder. And Freddie remains in the hole to this day. No charges have been brought. And that happened back in 2018. Correct. Late 2018. Yeah, no, I think it was November or October 2018. November. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit more about that bus back in December and then bring it into some uh, news that has been reported in the last couple of weeks. Uh, first by um, the Dean of, of, of Crime Writing in America, Jerry Capace, um, which then uh, saw some people in the New York press piggyback off of. And then I did some reporting on it from my Gangster Report uh, site that uh, added some further context. Mm -hmm. So the Gotti family has somehow been brought into the, in the discussion. Uh, Junior Gotti, who is the former uh, Don of the Gambino crime family, whose father was the iconic Dapper Don, John Gotti. Um, Junior Gotti is, has been someone that has, you know, they talk about nine lives. He has about 19 lives in terms of uh, the government coming after him. He beat four straight racketeering indictments throughout the 2000s. Um, and while he was serving, uh, I shouldn't say serving time, while he was behind bars waiting for trial in one of those cases, he's alleged to have aligned with some Latin kings, I believe, uh, at the end of his father's life. And in fact, John Jr. Gotti was caught on an FBI wiretap in 2003, lamenting the current stat or the, at then the current status of the Gambino crime family. He was fighting with his uncles, uh, the Dapper Don's brothers. And he made, some, he made a comment to the effect of, I wish I would have never uh, got into the Gambino crime family. I'd rather be a Latin king. Those guys are, are, are truly loyal to each other. So then you fast forward uh, to the months that uh, succeeded the, the, the December uh, Operation Thrown Down bust. And all of a sudden, there started to be some rumors that uh, the FBI was looking into Junior Gotti as being... Uh, the person that brokered these meetings that it, that took place at the Mount Carmel Society between the Latin Kings and uh, uh, the Italian mob in Springfield. Now, I, I'm not doubting that the FBI was looking into that, but the gist of my reporting has been that it, it's it's all a smokescreen, that this was uh, people that don't like Junior Gotti, that were looking to muddy the waters, that were looking to sling mud in his direction, that wanted to bring him into this discussion and were throwing his name out there to kind of tickle the wire and uh, cast him in a negative light. And my reporting says that it, it, it's all nonsense. It's all BS. The FBI knows it's nonsense and, and has no legs to it and that there will never be any charges or or what have you brought against Junior Gotti. Uh, Jerry Capace was the first one to write, I think it was two or three weeks ago, that the FBI was probing Junior Gotti's involvement or possible involvement in, in the setup of those two meetings. Stephanie, can you talk a little bit uh, about what you've heard about that? Sure, Scott, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, of course, no one from the FBI had called me and said, no, absolutely not into him. But when I began writing about it, the Chick-fil-A connection bust. I found myself as a reporter in the middle of this, it seemed to me to be like a social media war, dueling minions in the Gotti Jr. side. Um, and then on the other side, and the you know, and pro and anti-Gotti Jr. sides. Um, I, I we don't need to get we don't necessarily need to get into names, but just let people know that. In the last, let's say, five, six years, 
Junior Gotti has been kind of in a social media feud with some former members of his crew back in the 80s and 90s that don't like him and that are trying to just, you know, throw dirt in his direction wherever they can. And it seems like this is kind of stemmed from some of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wasn't necessarily going to name names, but my point was, it struck me that I feel like, so I'm at, at this outpost in Springfield. I mean, really just caught the edge, the Italian mom just caught the edge of this whole Latin sweep. Um, Michael Piccatelli is definitely a player. I mean, the Italian mom really doesn't have a whole lot to do with it in my assessment. Um, but it seemed to me that they very the things that go and really quickly got down in the weeds and started reaching out to me to try to lobby me to suggest that Junior Gotti was somewhere in the back of directing Latin things. And I just sort of, you know, refused to do it. It just smelled to me like this social media kind of really hard, really you know, fight on Instagram. And I thought, well, this is silly and there's nothing to it. Um, I believe Junior Gotti's son is an MMA fighter and they have bumped into Michael in that world. But I would not make the leap that Gotti Jr. is directing any activities for the Latin Kings. Despite it, seems like, it seems like there was some proverbial low-hanging fruit for Gotti rivals to try to gravitate to and grasp onto uh, because there seems to be some small tangential links between Gotti Jr. or Junior Gotti, if you will, and the Chechetelis. Um, but as you just mentioned, that link is non-criminal. Uh, it seems that Chicky Chechetelli um, was working in some capacity for Junior Gotti's son, uh, who's an MMA fighter, and was working uh, as part of his social media team to promote uh, to promote the Gotti MMA name. And there was some pictures that were floating around on Instagram over the last year or two of Chicky Chichitelli and Mike Chichitelli posing with Junior Gotti and Gotti's son at different MMA uh, events and, and, and social, um, social get-togethers. And that people wanted to immediately make the jump from, oh, Junior Gotti knows both Chechetelli's, regardless of how close he is to them, but because there's some connection there, then we're, we're automatically going to make the jump that, oh, well, because the Latin Kings in Springfield were meeting at the Mount Carmel Society, well, that had to have been set up by Junior Gotti, when in fact, we know that's probably not true. I would say it's definitely not true. I mean, someday I may be proven wrong, but I just think uh, it's this nasty little world of social media. You you catch a moment in time. And mind you, I'm assuming that the Springfield guys, the MMA fighters, the chicky, you know, chicky chickatellies of the world are probably slightly dazzled by his pedigree, you know, Gotti Jr. Um, so I just think there was a lot of background noise going on, but to me, it didn't amount to anything. Jimmy, why don't you jump in here? Uh, what, what For me, what was the most, um, the biggest red flag for me, or one of the biggest red flags for me in, in trying to reconcile whether or not Gotti was involved in those meetings or not, is that, as we said at the beginning of, of our podcast, the Springfield mob crew is connected directly to the Genovese crime family. 
the Gotti family is, you know, an iconoclast from the Gambino crime family. So that doesn't make sense right there. Jimmy, you've done a lot of research on the Gambinos. Why don't you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, it just doesn't uh, make sense. And from what um, we're hearing from Stephanie, uh, I'm not even confident that there, uh, there are any Genovese crime family members in Springfield at this point. I mean, it sounds like those are, um, I mean, what, would you say that, that, that the, the Italians that are operating in Springfield, are they, is that, a, would, would you consider that a crew in the Genovese crime family? Or are they ju- these just associates at this point that have kind of historical ties to the Genovese crime family? Stephanie. I, I would say mostly the latter. Um, there's a lot of associates who, I mean, there were rumors that Ralphie Santanella was on the block to get made. Um, I'm not sure that, that that happened because Scott, as you, as you have also written about, the books were closed for t- some time um, for the Genovese family. I think that, uh, well, Ralphie Santanello's father is 80 something years old and he has been long involved with the Genovese crime family. However, made guys with a traditional hierarchy at this point, that's not how I see it. I see it as just associates who are looking to grab opportunities in a vacuum. Well, I mean, I think that there was a lot of anger from the Genovese crime family towards the Springfield mob, uh, let's say back in the 2010s, because of what a circus it had become. And then at the end of that circus, you had Anthony Arellata, who's a friend of the program, shout out to Benji. Um, He testified against the leadership of the Genovese crime family and put a lot of those guys behind bars. And that, you know, cast the, 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 the Genovese, or sorry, cast the Springfield mob underneath the Genovese umbrella, uh, put them kind of in bad standing. And as a result, I think that the, the books were closed and it wasn't until the mid 2010s when they started discussing making new guys. And that was in the, um, in the months or the year before the big bus came down in 2016. Right. So I think, I mean, I think they brought a lot of attention on themselves. I mean, 2003, when we still had a really robust, powerful crew around here, headed by Erlata, along with the GSs, um, some other associates, I mean, I remember at trial that New York bosses were like, what's going on there? It's like the wild, wild west. You know, you're just bringing too much heat on this family. But at the same time, you had Artie Nigro, who's passed away in prison, and also went away for life as part of the Bruno prosecution. He's, he's ordering these hits. But I feel like Anthony Arlotta and his crew had become so petty with power that they were just doing really, really reckless things. So it was inevitable that that was going to crash and burn rather quickly. So they had a really hot, fast rise. And then everything went wrong. And then he testified against the family and the boxes. And there was that. And then there was this quiet period. And then you have Ralphie Santanello and his crew coming out to try to make moves. And they immediately bring more heat on the family. And I think you mentioned in our pre-discussions, uh, Ruth Renacria, Haven boss, who was in charge of Springfield, it was given to him. Um, he once said on a wire that he hated dealing with the Springfield guys because they were like a bunch of girls. <laughs> so I just think they've had this really tumultuous run over the past 
20 years. Stephanie, let me ask you something about the uh, sociological background of Springfield. We know in New York, when communities become less Italian and they become more African-American, Latino, Albanian, uh, in some ways, the, the Italian mafia guys, they get pushed out. I mean, this happened here in, in Detroit, too, because uh, you just don't have as prominent of an Italian-American community anymore. And so to the extent that rackets exist, Italian mafiosi, uh, it's difficult to enforce that turf when Italians no longer live in those neighborhoods. Uh, what's going on in Springfield in terms of like the socio, uh, sociological background? Is this a factor as well? Is this still an Italian stronghold or fewer Italian Americans? What does it look like for our audiences that are less familiar with that uh, part of the country? Yeah, so I would say it still remains pretty delineated. The geographic neighborhood that was historically the Italian stronghold, where the Mount Carmel Society is, still has a, a very strong Italian core in terms of its businesses, the social club. You know, they have um, Italian meat shops and, and bakeries and coffee shops. But in general, that the lower income housing there is not is no longer filled with Italians. Many of the Italians who got their start there moved out to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, so Springfield, it's, I wouldn't say it's a traditional city like, it's certainly not as diverse as New York City or even Detroit, I'd imagine. But most of the successful Italian mafiosi moved to the suburbs at any rate. Um, but, and that becomes more, so downtown Springfield in the South End has become more of like a sentimental home base than an actual home base. I mean, the demographics there have always been kind of a melting pot though, right? Lots of uh, different, yeah, uh, different ethnicities all kind of playing a role, uh, whether it be the, the, the white collar legitimate society or, you know, the, the gangsters. You had, uh, I believe you had uh, Portuguese, Puerto Ricans, uh, some Lebanese. Yeah, but I wouldn't say in big numbers in terms of like criminal enterprises. I mean, there's always urban crime. It, it involves, unfortunately, primar primarily Latino and African-Americans. But to me, the common denominator there is more is poverty more than anything else. Um, the Italians, while there was some overlap, they still kind of stuck to their own rackets. Um, you know, we have street posses in the inner city that's entirely separate. There's not a ton of overlap. Everyone kind of stays in their own criminal camp, by and large. Yeah, I get. And one of the reasons why I'm asking this is I'm thinking about the, the Genovese crime family in New York. Um, to what extent is it, is it worth the hassle to them anymore to, to try to keep their fingers in, in this part of the um, Massachusetts if the, the crew is, is traditionally, historically, at least the last 20 years or so, been a headache to them, fewer Italians in the uh, neighborhood in general. Um, do you think at some point it's just not worth it for the, for the New York family to um, keep their influence there? Or is there still enough money to be made that they have these loose connections still networked maybe? Well, I mean, I think that time might be now that they maybe just, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say they're just washing their hands at the Springfield crew. Right. There's still some elders who have just longstanding connections to New York, friendships. Um, but in terms of it being the big earning opportunity that it was for so long, unless something changes drastically or some new blood comes on the scene and they come up with some brilliant new 
enterprise that allows them to kick up. I mean, I would expect that the connection between Springfield and New York is, is tenuous right now. And I don't see how that changes. Yeah, um, something else you mentioned uh, that I think is interesting is, um, and Scott too, that, um, uh, you know, the old guys, they, it was very, um, uh, the Italians would uh, work with other Italians. But when Anthony was on our program, he talked about how he met a number of other gangsters in state prison who were not Italian. And so he started becoming involved in other non-traditional Italian rackets, drug trafficking, whatever, um, because he had made connections with some of these other ethnic guys. I think we've seen that in other examples too, where Italians go to prison, befriend African-American gangsters, Latino, whatever, Irish, whatever. So um, it seems to me like that's, that's pretty common now that you're, you know, all these people in prison, they make connections with each other. Well, and, Steph and Stephanie, why don't you talk specifically playing off of what uh, Jimmy just said, you know, and we've mentioned their names in this broadcast. Anthony's two top guys were the Gius brothers who right. weren't Italian. We're not, no. Um, and so um, they were Greek, so they could never be made. But their um, association during the kind of height of their run um, was unquestioned. I remember talking to law enforcement at the time when I was educating myself on who are these guys and, you know, what was the genesis of this violent tear in 2003? How did this happen? Um, and even the longtime mob investigator said, how did two Greek kids rise to the top of the heap? So I think that happens, but they're never going to trump. And I might say as an aside, I mean, I know the Italian gangsters love to denounce drug dealing and say, we don't deal drugs, we don't sell drugs. It's, you know, it's the other guys who do it. I personally think that's just a bunch of crap. <laughs> so I think they've been dealing drugs for longer than they'd like to admit. Um, but no, so there definitely is some overlap with other ethnic groups. But in terms of like um, crews, it, the Jesus were kind of an anomaly, I would say. The, the fact that they were so prominent. Yeah. Interesting. I'm uh, going back to something Scott asked me about, and I, di I didn't really answer it directly, but um, if, if some of the Springfield guys are, um, the, the Genovese crime family are um, kind of standoffish with them because of what we've been talking about, that's the same thing with Gotti Jr. and the Gambino family. I, I don't think the Gambinos in New York want anything to do with Gotti Jr. So uh, I'm not sure what Jr.'s status would be even I mean, you're, you're both saying that it didn't happen anyhow. He didn't broker anything. But um, another reason why that's, um, I think, um, we don't believe it is, um, I don't think Gotti Jr. has the status in the underworld anymore that he had anyhow. Well, certainly not in New York. Right. Um, I'd say in Springfield, there's a still a little bit of starry-eyedness going on, despite... Okay. Um, you know, he's still got the name. It's still kind of a brand within the mob world. Um, and, you know, it occurs to me that the mob has become, in some instances, much more forgiving than it historically has been. Yeah. Case point, Bingy, um, Anthony Arolata, you know, and not that I'm wishing anything bad on anyone, but 30 years ago, I mean, it's kind of astounding that he could just come back to the same city that he essentially upended with little to no drama yeah I we see that in detroit with some guys that are that are around here but also uh i mean some of the um some of the guys that we've talked on the program 
Larry, Michael Francis. Um, I mean, they're, yeah, they're still around. I mean, no one, I mean, I think they, they keep a cautious distance, but uh, the fact that they're very public figures, I, I agree with you that that would have been unheard of 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Somebody in the Italian mafia who, who left the life. In Detroit, you know, we have uh, a, a notoriously very stable, functional crime family where there have been, there's really only been one turncoat uh, and his name was Nove Toko. And Novi was the witness protection for about 15 years. But uh, Nove, after the death of the longtime godfather in Detroit, Jack Toko, in 2015, Nove matriculated back uh, to southeastern Michigan and has been living, keeping his head low, uh, avoid certain parts of the city where he, know he, he knows he could run into, uh, uh, you know, members of, of the organized crime family that, don't, that, that don't really <laughs> they don't have a lot of um, positive feelings towards him. But, uh, you know, I don't think if this was 30 years ago or 40 years ago, Nove would have felt comfortable at all uh, moving back lock, stock and barrel from from witness protection. I wouldn't think so. And Anthony hardly kept a low profile, at least when he first came back. Yeah, he's, the, he's the opposite of Nove. He's from what I understand, he's bopping around town. He is. I mean, I think he backed off it a little bit. But at the beginning, I think he felt like, okay, I'm back. Um, I'm not going to slink away, perhaps in like a proactive move to be like, if you want to come at me, don't think that I'm going to be hiding in a corner. Take your best shot. Um, that was just my impression. He was going to places like the Mardi Gras, Jimmy Santanello's like kind of notorious strip, strip club, you know, and to me, that's, it's, he may as well just walk into the Mount Carmel Society. So let's finish up a little bit. Um, couple things that, that Stephanie mentioned I want to add a little context to. So first off, this week, uh, Eugene Rooster Onofrio, uh, who was the Genovese crime family capo, uh, officially in charge of the Springfield crew uh, as of the last decade, I believe, he got the job after um, Anthony went to prison. And uh, he, 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 he was brought down in what was called the East Coast LCN case of 2016, where there were a bunch of members of different crime families that were all uh, gathered in the same indictment. And uh, Rooster was overseeing what was left of that Springfield crew in the 2010s. And uh, he pled guilty in 2018 and literally walked out of prison today, I believe, Thursday, uh, April 23rd after doing roughly 18 months or 19 months. Um, and then we also mentioned Ralphie Santanello, who was one of the guys that I believe uh, there were rumors uh, and, and innuendo in that indictment that uh, Onofrio was looking to propose a number of uh, Springfield guys for, for induction into the Genovese crime family. I believe Ralphie was one of those guys that was being proposed. Ralphie uh, pled guilty to that case, the, the 2016 East, uh, East Coast LCN case, and then he pled guilty to another case, a separate federal case out of Springfield for extortion, where he actually physically uh, assaulted a, uh, a guy that owned a tow truck company yep. for, not, for not paying uh, uh, tribute, a guy that had once paid tribute to, to Big Al Bruno. 
And Ralphie Santanello and his dad had come up through the ranks under uh, Bruno. Amadeo Santanello, who is Ralphie's dad, was, could be considered kind of an elder statesman of the mob in Western Massachusetts, um, was at one point Big Al Bruno's kind of right-hand man. And they had a falling out. Amadeo was kind of the vanquished of Florida. After Bruno was assassinated, uh, Amadeo came back and was under uh, Anthony when Ralphie was kind of uh, making his way up the ranks. So Ralphie uh, is slated to come out in the fall, but he, went, tough, yeah. he made a, um, with all the, the, the coronavirus uh, concerns, he made a, a, a plea for the judge to let him out early. And I believe that plea was rejected this week. It was, but it would have only shaved off three weeks. So he was slated to go to pre-release um, in Western Mass um, anyhow. Um, and so, I mean, he's going to be out May 12th anyway. And because of the whole COVID, um, the, the pandemic, a lot of people who are headed for pre-release are getting sent directly home instead. So they're not put in yet another um you know, incarceration setting where there's a bunch of guys all on top of each other. So there's a possibility he may just go directly home. And then let's finish up with um, kind of dip back into the days of our lives, soap opera aspect of the Springfield mob. Um, so I've reported and I've heard from, from some pretty good sources that the Santanellos, both Ralphie and Amadeo, are kind of on the outs of the Genovese crime family as of the last couple of years um, related to a photo that Amadeo Santanello took with a government witness by the name of Felix Tranguisi, uh, who, along with Anthony Arellata, uh, both turned against the Genovese crime family uh, in around 2009, 2010. And Amadeo took a photo uh, with Felix at a Springfield pizzeria that photo made it on to some social media sites. Word of, uh, of that photo got back to some Genovese crime family leaders, some of which were in prison, uh, one being Artie Negro, Negro who, who you just referenced a couple minutes ago, who was the acting boss of the Genovese crime family in the 2000s, became a, a mentor of sorts to Anthony Arellata. And I guess what I'm going to ask you is, you know, what, we're, what we've heard or what I've heard is that right now the Santanellos are kind of on the shelf uh, and it's kind of remains to be seen, uh, at least with Ralphie, if he'll be allowed to kind of come back into the fold. I, I would say that's primarily true. I mean, I saw that photo. That photo has been kicking around for a couple of years, the one at Red Rose Pizza, which is also in the heart. It's right across the street from Mount Carmel Society. Um, I think it was an unfortunate photo. It's been kicking around for a couple of years, but I think the kind of on the shelf and on the outs um, status may have had more to do with um, Amadeo Santanello's vying for management of the, the Mount Carmel Society Club with Al Albert Calvinese. I think it was the elder Santanello and Albert Calvinese who is basically a rogue associate, like associated with no one in particular, but he and uh, Ralphie Santanello are first cousins. And I will be very interested to see how that plays out once Ralphie comes back to town, but because they are both 
two very volatile individuals. And I feel like Ralphie will feel compelled to, you know, stand up for his father's honor, but we'll see. And to give some added context to the Red Rose Pizzeria and how it played into the downfall of Big Al Bruno, it was at that pizza parlor, I believe, in the beginning of 2003, January or February of 2003, where Big Al Bruno was going to pick up a pizza to bring home to his family. He runs into an FBI agent who he knew just from the fact that this FBI agent had been following him around for 10 years, and they made some small talk. And in that small talk, uh, Big Al Bruno kind of confirmed for the FBI that a guy by the name of Emilio Fusco had been made. That conversation made it into some court records. And all of a sudden, by the summertime of 2003, you had people taking those court records and waving them around as, in their mind, proof that Big Al Bruno was a snitch. While we know for you know, pretty certainly he wasn't an FBI informant, but he probably shouldn't have had that conversation with the FBI agent. Nonetheless, it was used against him as a way to convince the Genovese crime family to sanction uh, his assassination. Yeah, that, that piece of paper really, that, so I think the conversation may have happened earlier, perhaps in 2001. It came to light because we had a group of, I don't know, 12, a dozen or 14 gangsters who had gotten indicted in 2001. They were all coming up for their sentencings. So in a pre-sentence report, I think it was Fusco actually who was, denying the fact that he, he was a made guy because that matters when you go before a federal judge, how long your sentence will be. So that conversation was cited in Fusco's pre-sentence report and many could argue, it could be a strong argument that that piece of paper citing that conversation was basically the last nail in his coffin. I mean, he was already kind of on the ropes with the higher ups in New York, but that- We're talking about Big Al Bruno, just for people to know. Yep, sorry. Um, Bruno was kind of on the ropes with the higher uh, higher ups in New York, but that piece of paper was just, that was the piece of paper that resulted in the green light for his murder. I think that uh, Big Al Bruno was someone, and correct me if I'm wrong, Stephanie, someone that always had his eye on- the capo slot, uh, someone who probably had started eyeing that that Springfield mob capo slot from the 70s when uh, he started being groomed by uh, the Scabelli brothers. And then when he finally got it uh, around 2000, 2001, uh, he might have let the power go a little to his head. I heard that he was fighting a lot with Genovese, was not sending them uh, the tribute that they felt that they were entitled to. There was some type of sit-down uh, early on in, in Bruno's reign uh, regarding some type of stolen uh, yeah. shipment of cigarettes mm-hmm. that he had. Uh, uh, th- th- there was a sit-down, and the Genovese crime ruled against him in the sit-down, which caused Bruno to be upset and allegedly might have started bad-mouthing some of those guys. Mm-hmm. And then guys like Anthony kind of see, a, see an opening, and the next thing you know, uh, you know, Bruno's dead and, uh, you know, everything's in chaos out there. Right. If, if Anthony is good at nothing else, he's very good at spotting openings. Um, and no, that's right. So Bruno, and also I think because he had been around for so long, for so many decades that I, I think he felt like he was the capo before he was actually the capo. 
and he was a pretty brash guy with a lot of swagger. He had a lot of connections with, he was in bed with local government, you know, the former district attorney. He was the classic high profile gangster. Everyone sort of, you know, mooned over. So, I mean, I think his ego was capo sized before he was a capo. And that may have led to some tension um, when he finally was capo. He was very he networked was in to other, to other crime families. I know from a project that I did uh, out of Philadelphia um, with uh, writing the autobiography of Crazy Phil Yannetti, who was the underboss of the Philadelphia crime family, who had a couple meetings with uh, Big Al Bruno related to some, uh, I believe related to one gangland homicide. And then uh, Crazy Phil actually testified at Bruno's 93 trial, mm -hmm. which he got acquitted of. He did, mistri mistrial and then acquittal. Stephanie, let me ask you, um, did the, um, you talked about uh, one of Anthony's associates, Freddie um, Gia's, uh, him, uh, it seems like he's the, uh, the guy who, one, at least one of the people involved in the murder of Whitey Bulger. Did that have any, um, the underworld in Springfield, did that create any kind of buzz, that situation? Oh, yeah, a lot of buzz. I mean, mind you, he hasn't um, been charged. No one has been charged. Right. But no, there, there was a ton of buzz, particularly inside baseball circles, which is where the buzz usually stays. Mm -hmm. um, but no, he and, you know, the funny thing was people were kind of shocked. Um, but then again, the people who knew Freddie were not surprised <laughs> at the same time. What do you think that uh, Anthony mentioned that uh, he um, speculated that um, this may be about that Whitey Bulger provided intel to the FBI about um, some people that Freddie did time with. And so this, that might have something to do with this. What do you, what do you, what do you think? What are you hearing? So I don't, I don't want to overstate the level of detail that I have about who he may have cooperated against, but certainly there was a cluster of East Coast gangsters in that um, in that prison. Moreover, um, the theory that was being bandied about here, which makes a certain amount of sense, is he's in prison for the rest of his life. He and his brother are in prison for the rest of his life because one of his best friends right. testified against him and sold him out. So on principle, I think he's not an, a huge fan of informants. And Right. You know, Bulger was like the poster boy for mob informants for, and you know, maybe forever. He, he may be the poster boy forever. So I think on principle, that could have been a lot of the, the reason. And not you know, to sound cold or callous to, to victims' families or whatnot, but I mean, this, <laughs> this makes Freddie G's in prison a god. I mean, he's going to be there the rest of his life and uh, he'll probably you know, be on the top of the heap on the inside until he, until he breathes his last breath just because of what he did in, in the fall of 2018 to take out this, this, you know, mythological Boston Irish mob boss who has had, you know, libraries of books written about him, uh, a movie with, with Johnny Depp. Um, and he, and, and, and he was the one that, uh, you know, <laughs> That, that wrote the last chapter on Whitey Bulger. And that's something that resonates through prison walls. For sure. But first they have to let him out of the shoe, out of the hole right. and in isolation. And, you know, I, I guess 
the BOP, they, they essentially answer to nobody, I found, in terms of all the federal agencies. I mean, that he could be in 23-hour-a-day lockdown for indefinitely. Uh, so uh, Roberto is uh, sending us uh, messaging to uh, wrap things up. So um, anything else you want to get in there, Scott, before we sign off? just want to thank Stephanie. This was an amazing interview, and I would expect nothing less because she's such an amazing reporter. I've learned a lot from her, uh, and I hope I can continue to learn a lot from her. And uh, she does such an amazing job covering that territory. Keep up the great work, Stephanie, and thank you so much for joining us here on The OG. Yeah, thank you. My, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. So uh, for everyone at the Original Gangsters Podcast, I'm Scott Bernstein for Jimmy Bucciolato and uh, our producer, Roberto. We uh, wish everyone uh, a very uh, happy and safe uh, last week of, of April. Keep your social distancing. Uh, stay inside as much as you can. And we'll keep on bringing you as much content from the OG as we can to keep you occupied uh, when you're climbing the walls. So, uh for the original Gangsters podcast, we're out.